All right, I'll be reading a harmony of John 1, Luke 5, Matthew 8, and Mark 1, the calling of the disciples. John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus later saw two boats while passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing and mending their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, He asked him and his brother Andrew to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, including James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when the four of them had brought their boats to land, they left everything, even James and John's brother Zebedee in the boats with the hired servants, and followed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Also, if you have, uh, if you have little ones and you want to take them back to the kids' room there, now is the time. So just briefly, we're, uh, yeah, we're discussing throughout the summer the, the disciples. Um, and hey, everybody turn on your phones. Make sure you do that just because, you know, we want to make sure you get all your calls and stuff. Okay. No. Um, the, uh, we're talking about the, the diverse disciples of Jesus. This is an idea that actually good old uh, Ray back there in the back had shared with us, and he thought it was a good idea a while back because we were thinking about the way that our church was having to navigate 2020, and we were thinking about the, the different types of people, the different ways of thinking, honestly, the complications that, it, that come about when you have people of different backgrounds and you know, different experiences with different temperaments. And it's an easy thing to see if you really just, just begin to kind of dig under the surface of the lives of these disciples, that these were radically different people with radically different backgrounds and radically different temperaments. And chances are the only thing that actually brought them together was Jesus. Um, if it hadn't been for Jesus, these people probably never would have been friends and never would have walked together. And the truth is, that's what it should be like to be in the church, um, if you're in a church, um, you know, that's where you're like, this is like, I'm here because I understand all these people exactly. That might not be a good sign. Um, it actually might be a bad sign because really the bonding idea for the Christian is Jesus. So that's why we're going through this to kind of examine this idea and 
work it out by looking at some of these different um, disciples, seeing what we can learn from them, um, but also to give us insight about each other and to help kind of prepare us for the you know, next big thing that will happen in the world in which we'll need to love each other and walk together through that. So that's, that's what we're doing. And we're talking about the Apostle John. So pray with me and we'll jump in. Father, I want to thank you for our church. I want to thank you for all of the unique people that are here. Um, I thank you for the ways that we've challenged each other throughout the years and the ways that we'll continue to, for the unique gifts and strengths that you've given each and every one of us, um, for the ways that you've placed us in one another's lives so that we can sharpen each other and walk with each other and help each other follow you more. And I pray that you would give us insight into that, even tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Apostle John, what do we know about John? Um, He's, honestly, he's kind of one of the big ones, right? He's kind of one of the famous ones, and so there's, the info is very much out there, and, and, and of course, though, a lot of it's lost to history. There's so much about an ancient person you just can't really know and figure out. Uh, we talked about the other day that the show Chosen probably makes this an even more interesting series because if anybody's watching that, which I know some of you are, the, uh, the character development idea behind the disciples is inviting people into this idea of who were they really and what were their lives like. And, you know, we're guessing on a lot of things. We're, we have to. Like a show like The Chosen has to build narrative because it's not all there. They didn't write the kind of biography that we would write today where you get underneath all of the little, you know, assumptions and interview all of the people about the personality traits. And they they just didn't write like that. And even if they did, you know that even those kind of biographies today have, have a twist or an angle on them. And they're trying to paint someone in a certain light. So, of course, we don't know everything about the Apostle John. But some of the things that seem pretty well accepted is he was likely very young, potentially the youngest disciple, we, we read right in here, he was a fisherman uh, with his brother, uh, James, his father, and he was a business partner with Peter and, uh, and Andrew, which is interesting. Um, we learned from ch- church history that he was the only apostle that wasn't martyred. Uh, he would have been the last of the living uh, disciples. There's a good chance, and this is interesting, and actually part of why I read the, the early portion of that harmony was that he was one of John the Baptist's disciples before being one of Jesus' disciples. That's not a sure thing, but the way that he speaks about there being two disciples that followed John, and then he names Andrew and doesn't name the other one, um, leads some commentators to believe that it was him. That's kind of how he tends to talk about himself, um, so that he was potentially, um, he was a business partner with Andrew, and so it wouldn't be too surprising. He seems to describe some things about John the Baptist that are pretty detailed. Um, and so it, it's, it's likely that he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, one, of the, one of the early disciples, clearly, one of the first, one of what, what some have called the inner circle of disciples, along with Peter um, and James, who witnessed some pretty unique stuff, like the raising of Jairus's daughter. And that's a moment where not all the disciples would have seen that, uh, and, and a pretty huge miracle in the life of Jesus. Uh, he would have seen the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus is glorified with Moses and Elijah, um, along with Peter and James. And this is, that's like a, a huge thing. If, if, if that happened, that's an incredible thing, right? And so there are only three of them that saw that. Um, 
he would have been one of the three that saw the agony of Jesus and his like deep prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he, he was just there for some of the most intimate and meaningful moments in Jesus's life, is what we know. And Jesus had, had a name for him and his brother James, right? This seems to be kind of a unique thing for them and Peter, his inner circle. Uh, Peter is called, you know, is renamed from from Simon to, to Peter, and he's the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church. And he calls James and John the sons of thunder, which is interesting. And most people say that that's um, probably because of their tempers, because there was a time, you know, for example, when they call, wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village. And I don't know if you felt like that, but like I've definitely wanted to destroy some things with fire in my life. And I don't know, I'm, my temper's not that bad, but it's, you know, it's a thing. They did that, and, uh, but the truth is that Jesus didn't seem to name people according to their, like, their negative characteristic, necessarily. If you think about Peter, I mean, maybe he was called the rock because he was hard-headed, you know, but that's not really what Jesus seemed to be getting at. It was like, you are part of this firm foundation. You have this rock-solid faith. And chances are, and interestingly, that the chosen that show kind of keys in on this. Maybe they did have a little bit of a fiery temper, but Jesus probably also saw great potential in them and strength, um, and that would have been why he gave them kind of their unique name. Um, John interestingly calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. That seems to be one of his ways to describe himself. And that can come across to us as like an arrogant thing to say, potentially. But it doesn't have to mean his favorite disciple. That doesn't have to mean that John was saying, I was his favorite. It may have just been a way of identifying his experience to Jesus. He sensed Jesus' love. So that's how he decided to describe himself as opposed to naming himself. Another interesting thing is if you really read the Gospels closely, John doesn't talk a lot. That's kind of an interesting thing you, you notice. He, uh, he's present in a lot of moments, but you don't hear a ton of dialogue from him. I mean, it's there. Sometimes his mistakes, like asking to, you know, for he and his brother James to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in glory, he gets rebuked for that one. Maybe that's when he stopped talking. It was right about there. Um, I don't know. But, but he doesn't say a ton. Yet, he wrote more of our New Testament than any other disciple. Um, Paul wrote more than he did, but of, the, of these 12 disciples, John gives us the most, um, his gospel, three letters, and the book of Revelation. And not only that, not only did he write a lot, but we know that we, we, have, we have a pretty good idea of his legacy as far as leadership goes, because the, the church father Polycarp was a, a disciple of his. Um, and then Polycarp was an elder of Irenaeus, who, if you get into church history and kind of nerd out on church history, this is a huge, you know, these are big names of of people who had a lot of influence, and they had direct succession back to the Apostle John. And, um, you know, people like Polycarp, they were writing letters to churches like Philippi, where Paul wrote the book of Philippians. And so they're all engaging, And, and this is just an interesting little aside here, but it's a really interesting thing to see multi, you know, generations after the Apostle John has died, his disciples writing letters to 
churches that Paul established, you see these interesting, unique streams of the church that were separate in separate places in diverse cities that are beginning to now communicate with each other and teach and accept each other's authority. Interestingly, when Irenaeus was pushed on the validity of the gospel, this was one of his proofs, was he said, look at the unique streams of this church, and we agree, and we all trace our lineage back to the same 12 apostles. And he kind of said, that should say something to you, which is interesting. Um, I, I, some, I've told some of you that I read some of my family history last year, and I went and hung out in Bisbee, and I, my mom wrote a family history of ours. And I, you're reading this stuff from multiple years back, but you can trace, you know, well, this, my mom said this, and she knew my aunt, and my aunt knew her dad, and that, you know, and you trace this whole thing back, and then you read a story that one of them tells, and it adds strength to the story, because you're like, this isn't just a random story. This is a story connected by relationships that I, you know, that I'm connected to. I remember reading one of the stories last year from one of my far back ancestors, and there was a, a, a handwritten little thing he was writing about what life was like in Bisbee, and he talked about the floods they would have every time it rained, and how he would see horses getting washed down Main Street. Now, that's like, that's like an eyewitness detail, you, you know, and he, like the way he described it was very vivid, and I, could, I can now like stand on the side of Main Street and imagine this just like poor horse getting washed down Main Street because my far back ancestor wrote to me about it. That's the kind of thing we see happening with the the disciples of John. And also it, it highlights one other thing about John is that his writings bear this hallmark of eyewitness testimony, especially true of John. There are details like this early conversation with John the Baptist, where it gets very detailed about some of the things he said about Jesus, um, details of Jesus's prayers, uh, a lot of details of the time after the resurrection, things like sounds and smells. When Mary, um, you know, Lazarus's sister, when she broke open her perfume, you could smell it in every single room in the house. How do you know that unless you were in every room of the house, right? Like, why would you even bring that up? And that's the kind of stuff that John tells us, that, that signals to us he, he was there. And his letters bear this depth and this simplicity, kind of reminiscent of Jesus, that leads you to believe that he was close. Like, here's a, here's a portion of First John where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same ways in which he walked. Now, that is not Paul 
that doesn't have the complexity of some of the, the lines of thought of Paul, but it also invites deep reflection. It, these are like powerful, simple words, right? Because it, it, it gets you to ask questions like, am I a liar? Um, do I really keep his commandments? Do I know him? Um, is he advocating for me? When I sin, is he advocating for me? Uh, how, what would it look like for me to walk in the ways in which he walked? I mean, these are simple words that invite more, it, they, they make you ask more questions. And that's the kind of stuff that Jesus did when he spoke as well. And then, of course, there's the book of Revelation in which John is telling us that he's granted this intense and personal spiritual vision that weaves together eternity. Um, and it is a mind-numbing book to read if you haven't done that lately. But it weaves eternity, eternity together, sometimes past, present, and future, all in one vivid, dramatic scene. Imagine... Imagine seeing what John is going to describe here. I'm going to read from Revelation 12. Having known Jesus personally and believing that this vision was about the person that you knew and were friends with. Just imagine, we tend to read it very disconnected. Imagine being the Apostle John. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a red dragon, seven heads and ten horns on his head and seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. There she had a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they've loved their lives, not their lives, even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. There are so many questions there. How much of that was the past history of Israel? How much of that is the future history of the church? You know, where in there is Jesus exactly? It's intense. But imagine describing the kingdom of his Christ. He's talking about Jesus a guy he walked around with and had lunch and dinner and breakfast with every single day, and he believes that this insane spiritual scene has at the core of it his friend who he knew on this earth. That is mind-boggling experience 
and, and, a, and an amazing thing to have seen. Okay? So there's your brief bio of John. Just a couple tidbits to kind of get you thinking about John, the beloved disciple. And one of our premises in this series that, as I said just a bit ago, is that walking with Jesus with other people can be difficult because we're so different. And I have to confess that when I was getting, re- when I was getting ready for this, my first thought is this is, like the, this is the disciple everybody wants to be friends with. Like this is the kind of person, there's, there aren't any qualms with John. I don't ever hear somebody going, you know what? You know what disciple would really drive me nuts? is John. I just, I've never, nobody's ever said that. You know, you, Peter, oh, he probably had a temper. Thomas, well, you know. John? No, nobody says that about John. And then it hit me, you know. One thing I thought, Mission Church, you know, what are we like? What kind of people do we connect with? And then I, then I thought, not even just Mission Church, I thought, me? And I thought, uh-oh, I don't know if I like people like John very much. I started having people come to mind. You know, these people that they always know what the Bible means. They're always just so clear. Um, they get all this passion. Um, they seem to just either have or believe that they have just like extra access to Jesus. If I'm honest, I don't always enjoy them. Okay? I, I, I thought of, of a guy, I don't want to go too much into it because, you know, he's probably one of those, he probably listens to every, all his friends' sermons every week. But I, I've spent time with this other pastor. He's just too excited about Jesus. Like, always. I mean, you're on, you're on social media and he's on there. He's like, it is so good to be with you. And I'm like, I am so muting this and moving on. Right? And uh, what's wrong with me? Like, what, what is my problem? I don't know. Um, does anyone else does anyone else relate to this? Am I the only? Yeah, I I know you do because that's why we're here. Um, that's seriously why we're here at this church. No, I I think I think we can be. I think several things can come up. I think, and I'll speak for me, and I'll assume for some of us. I think some sometimes there's jealousy of those people. Like, why do they get to be so stinking happy? Um. Even more than that, I struggle to believe that it's honest. I think it's manufactured sometimes. Um, Or I feel like this, it's like subtle unworthiness. Like, well, if they really are this close to Jesus, then I don't belong here. Or or something, something of that nature. And I got to say about this guy that I'm talking about, actually after years I believe him. I think that's what makes it the hardest for me. I'm like, do you really wake up this bushy-tailed every day? <sighs> I don't know. It's like our, you know, it's how I feel about Chandler, our dog. Like every day, he's just like, hey! Like every day? Same experience, you know? Like, I, did, I just, I wish I related to that. I really do. So I want to I wanna think about now that I've described this and my angst and I've 
told you how I don't like really nice, happy people who love Jesus. Um, <laughs> now, maybe I imagine, do you, you know, think, maybe I've jogged your thinking. You could think of some of, of your own versions of this, right? Um, and, and honestly, as we talked about this sermon kind of coming up, we, we were acknowledging for many people, it's like you might think of like me, John, Ray, Mike, Nick, you know, like people in ministry, like those are, you know, some of your names here, like the Nancy Nethertons, like the people that are like, like they're, they're doing all this work and they seem to be so sure, right? Like those are, those are names we know, right? You might think of, of me. Um, and to some degree, people who go into kind of ministry work feel some sense of being called to spend a lot of time with Jesus, right? So what do we do with these kind of beloved type disciples? Now I'm making it, haven't I, do you see what I just did? In just two minutes, I took it from like, wow, John. And now you're like, John. Ah, oh, John. <laughs> What do we do with disciples that are a little more like like John? I'm going to give you four words here, and you're think, I know what you're thinking. You go, Andy, you've been at this for a while, and you're just now giving us the four things. This is bad, bad news. And yeah, it might be bad news. I don't know. We'll see. I think I think they're going to go quick. The, the kind of four words that kind of came up as I was working through this: desire, celebrate, support, listen. Um, I'll just go through these. I think we should desire what these people do have, the, the genuine ones. And, and, and granted, there are fakes, right? And, and we've seen it. We've heard of it. It's out there. It's a thing. Um, some people act happy. They're not happy. I get it. But some people genuinely do have something, this connection to Jesus. And John, John wasn't the only one in the scriptures. Uh, I read to you about kind of King David's, his early, you know, when when... He's going before Samuel, and now he, it's interesting because Samuel says God doesn't look at the outside, he looks at the heart, but guess what happens when David comes up? I mean, he sounds like he looks good on the outside, right? Like, he's oh, he's ruddy and handsome, nice eyes. Okay, like, he, he's not like, it, he, it doesn't say, and then David walked up, and, you know, Samuel recoiled because he was horrendous, and, you know, no, he's a good-looking, nice-looking guy, look kind of, you know, okay. And he had this heart. He knew God's heart. And, uh, and he was a beloved disciple. Uh, his name meant beloved. But he, he and John, as we know, aren't perfect. Um, but, but they have something. I think we should desire to know the heart of God. Um, we should love God's word uh, as John. I mean, John, who will write, and we'll read this later, that he believed, you know, he, he gave this name to Jesus, the word, the logos of God, the very mind, heart, and soul of God that like, came and dwelt among us. I mean, John must have spent time listening to Jesus to know that, right? And we should want to sing praises to God as David was known for, um, to know how God thinks and feels, to even have emotionally deep experiences with God. And that's the kind of stuff that David and John, it seems, may have experienced. And I, I don't think any of us should say in our hearts, you know, I just don't have it. I just, that's just not me. Um, Paul tells us we should desire spiritual gifts. And, and I don't actually believe that that just means that you get to like, you know, like move things with your hand. 
I think it's like desire really beautiful spiritual things from God. Those are spiritual gifts. And some of those come across miraculous, and some of them are just deep and meaningful. But I think we are supposed to desire this. We shouldn't mute the desire that we have to know God deeply. So how do we cultivate that? I mean, I think we can assume some things from the life of John, and I'm going to kind of rattle these off, but I think if you dig in there, we can assume these things. I think John was teachable. Um, I think John was curious. I think John was moldable and willing to change. I mean, think about that. He's going to call down fire, and then you read his letters, and he's like, little children, let us love. And he, he changed, right? Um, I think he was a deep listener and a learner, and all of those things are accessible to all of us. Any of us can do that. Um, he, was, he was young. He followed Jesus. He wanted to be taught. He, he placed himself at Jesus' feet, and so he was. And I think any of us uh, can do that, to, to desire to be close to Jesus and cultivate it, to, to just be available, to prioritize Christ, to show up, to follow him, to spend time in solitude, to seek him. I really, I think any of us can move toward that. You know, there's the, the moment where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that's kind of a revelation idea too. But sometimes that's usually cast as this idea that it's primarily like, Jesus will save you if you open the door. I mean, maybe the truth is that Jesus is just there for you anytime you open the door. Like, to be known. He's always, I mean, isn't that true of the character of God? He's always there. It's, it's not him that's distant. It's us, right? We're the ones that are distracted by all the weeds and the cares of the world. So, I think we should desire that. And maybe that desire could, could move us toward it. Don't mute those desires just because you feel like it, it really hasn't happened for you, right? Celebrate. We should celebrate when others get this. Um, I, this is something I really think this is like a problem of kind of skeptical folks, like some, some of us here can be, is I think, I think rather than celebrate, we can kind of disdain or even be jealous of something really good that somebody else gets. Um, this isn't just a spiritual problem. This happens with a lot of things. Um, what is it about us that can't celebrate when somebody else gets something great, but we immediately look inward and go, why don't I have that, right? Um, this is an interesting and helpful line of thought, I think. Uh, years ago, a friend told me about his experience um, in an area of Indonesia in which he worked with the poor. Um, and we were having a discussion about kind of poverty in the United States. And he said, you know what? He's like, man, I learned so much when I was in Indonesia because there, the, he worked in a poor community. He said that in that community, they wanted to be near the wealthy. And he said their, their general disposition was, if somebody's wealthy, there's a reason. They probably know something I don't know. Or they have access to something I don't have access to. And they were probably once poor. Or like, you know, they, they understand. And so they were like, the, the big thing was like, get close to wealthy people, right? In, in our American society, the general narrative, and I, and I think it comes from this idea and that, which is one that's just so built in for us that we, you earn what you have and everything's accessible for you if you just work for it. And that's not all wrong. 
But something happens in there where it turns, like if you've worked really hard and you have things, you look at somebody else and go, well, you don't have because you didn't work. And if you are somebody who's poor, and I say this from, from experience, by the way, you look at people that have, that have things and you're kind of like, you're not, I can't be happy for you because this just means you're better than me. And, and it's hard to celebrate. And what you find yourself doing is nitpicking. And so like the kind of things that would happen in my household is you would look at wealthy people and find ways that they didn't work hard and point them out to each other and go, look, they don't work that much. Look, the boss, the boss at the lumber company, he goes home at 3 o'clock. All the guys have to stay till 5. It's bogus, you know? It's stupid. You kind of disdain it. It's, it's sad. It's a sad thing. And so what you don't do is you don't move toward each other. Now, I'm not really talking about being poor and wealthy here, right? I'm not. I'm talking about spiritual things, but it's the same principle. When you look at somebody who has these like deep, meaningful spiritual experiences as close to Jesus, and you have that kind of disdain that goes like, that's not fair. Like, you know, that it, or you think, or vice versa, you have these deep experiences with Jesus. You look at a skeptical person and go, that's because you're not trying. Like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Well, guess what? Like, maybe that's just their orient. Like, they have a hard time with it. So share, move toward them, vice versa. Look at somebody who has like deep, meaningful spiritual experiences and you want to say about them, they don't really deserve that. It's, it's bogus. It's fake. What if it's not? Like, what if they have something that they could like teach you or invite you into? Move toward, move toward them. Speak highly of them. Celebrate them. If you can celebrate somebody else's deep and meaningful experience of Christ, then you can move toward that and perhaps it could actually like rub off and bless you and be, be a good thing in your life. Perhaps they can give you access into what they know. And I can tell you this, which is likely true of, you know, the wealthy in Indonesia. As a pastor, you know, if the assumption, if your assumption is that I have this deep knowledge and like deeper access to God and that my soul is always satisfied, like, can I just let you know, like, false like, that's not true. Like, some of you who probably feel very weak could offer me really meaningful things, right? I was going to praise Jordy. I don't know where he went. But um, after my dad died, you know, so you guys all were, like, so kind. Um, but probably if I could give the, like, best support award ever, I would have given it to Jordy. Because one day we were driving home, and he just looked over me, and he goes, oh. It sucks when your dad dies. I just, I just started to cry. It was like, it was just the simplest, truest. He didn't ask me to tell him anything. It just, we just, there it was. And I was like, thank you. That's how I feel. <laughs> um, it really is like when you move toward people who you perceive to have it all together, you'll find out they need you too. It really can be a mutual thing. So, and one more reason. So celebrate these folks. When you can celebrate, you can move toward them. When you can celebrate, you can offer, you can share, you can have a mutual experience. Um, one, more, one more reason to celebrate, and this is more of a little bit of a blunt one, is that God chose to give them that experience, and it's not worth getting hung up on. You know, he gave it to them. That's, that's what he did. 
Uh, there's an interesting interaction between Jesus, Peter, and John. And this is, you know, we believe for telling Peter's crucifixion, John 21, 18. Jesus is talking to them. Truly, I say to you, and he's talking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then, uh, sorry, the apostle John writing this says, this is, this he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God with. And after saying this to him, to Peter, he said, follow me. You know, he repeated his call to him, follow me into this death. And then Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on him against the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And we know that's John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread about, about among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not going to die. But if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is John telling us he believes he's going to die, which is interesting. But what, isn't that an interesting moment? It's such a classic Jesus thing to say. Like, what, do, what does it matter what I give to him? If I cause him to live forever, what difference does it make? You follow me to the death. I mean, I, there's something to that. Like, there's, God kind of at some point gets to decide. I'm going to give you this experience. I'm going to give you this one. And that's a hard word, but it's true. And I suppose Jesus says this to many of us, especially when we want to compare our lives with the lives of other believers, right? And that's tough. I've done this. I've done this so many times. I remember when I was first planting the church, I, co- I planted a church at the same time another guy I used to work with planted one. His ended up like 800 people. Mine had like six. And there were a lot of what is that to you moments between me and God. So what, Andy? That's not what I gave you. Right? Follow me. Okay, so desire to be beloved. Celebrate those who are beloved. Don't become jealous or critical. Fall into comparisons and then support. Because the prevailing idea is that life is easy for these people. They wake, they wake up bushy-tailed and just love the Lord, right? That's how I view them clearly from my words, right, in this very sermon. Uh, But we need to understand there's a weight to closeness that not everyone can bear. Just think about a few examples of the life of John. John is the one present for every excruciating moment at the cross. And, you know, not only did he get to experience Jesus's like most powerful healings and, you know, he had to see and feel his deepest raw, gruesome pain. Every minute of it. Um, I've known people with extreme empathy that just have this, this feeling. In fact, a pastor I used to work for, it was a known thing that if he, walked, if he went and did a hospital visit, he would usually be in pain. Like he, he felt so much empathy for people in pain. It was an interesting thing. And so every time, and people didn't realize this, when he visited you in the hospital, the weight he carried was far heavier than most people's weight. It just was. He felt this intensity of spiritual pain. Um, I don't know what this was like for John, but just, just to even just the presence, just to be invited into that, to be close, to be willing to be close, it, it was an invitation into deep, deep pain. 
Jesus um, tells John at the cross to care for his mother and declares not only to care for her, but say, this is your mother. And that sounds like, you know, things like that can be like, wow, what an honor. Yeah, and responsibility. That's another side of it. Like, sometimes people who have this deep connection with Jesus have a deep level of response. Like, Jesus asked them to do many, many things. There were zero other disciples that were asked to, like, actually consider his mother their mother, right? It's a gift, but it's also a weight to bear. These beloved disciples, that some of them need your help and support because they're bearing a weight. And finally, consider receiving the revelation. I mean, people who have weighty things upon their hearts and minds are exhausted by those things. I mean, they're... Even just, I don't know, go hang out with a philosopher for like two days. These are tired people, okay? <laughs> There's, this is heavy, like just heavy thoughts. Imagine being given a vision of like all of eternity mashed into one piece in the kingdom of God. And man, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of being given an incredible revelation from God himself. And he didn't write it down like John, but he said that to keep him from being conceited, that God sent him. This is one of the most interesting scriptures. God sent to me a messenger from Satan to torment me, Paul said. And so what you hear in that, there's this twofold danger in being given like a very deep and meaningful experience with God. Number one, you could be, be conceited and be tempted toward pride. And number two is that God could help you. And apparently God might send a messenger from Satan to torment you. Ouch. Like, do you, are you sure you want deep, meaningful spiritual experiences, right? Um, if those are the two, your two options. Um, either way, such a person is in need of support, either to fight against pride or to just withstand the spiritual torment that comes along with the weight of this stuff. I've wondered several times throughout the years if the reason so many Christian leaders fall is because they resist such support or those around them don't think they can offer anything. Because I think they need, that. there's that, that pride or just the torment. So desire to be beloved, deeply known by Jesus. Cultivate that, celebrate those who are beloved, and support them. They, they need it. And finally, this is my last thing, listen to these people. I already mentioned John gives us more New Testament books than the other 11. First, second, third John, the Revelation. Um, his, there's his legacy, the way that he trained leaders like Polycarp and Irenaeus uh, after him. And then, but, but then John gives us his gospel, his his window into the life of Jesus. We believe is one of the last ones that was written. People like David, we got some of our most valuable Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms. Um, in our family, we're just now reading the book of Numbers, and there's this, that moment when the, the uprising happens in the camp, and they turn against Moses, and Moses rebukes them. Um, and he, he tells Moses, right, he says, go and tell them, you know, I don't speak to them, but you, I walk around with and, you, and I talk to you. I'm going to kill all of them. And Moses gets down on the ground and prays, don't kill them all. They don't know what they're doing. Sounds very Jesus-like in a way. But 
But do you see like Moses who gave us the Pentateuch had this deep, close relationship to God. David who gave us the Psalms, a deep, close relationship to God. John who gives us the revelation and the gospel of John, a deep revelation to God. We should listen. We should read what they wrote. Like, we should be hungry for it, right? I, I kind of did a thing where I'm not always a Bible app guy, but I was like, there's a lot of John. I tried to take in as much John everywhere I was going this week as I could. And it was good. It was really just listening to lots of John stuff. And it was really, really meaningful. And I think that happens in the Bible, but also in the church. This gets back to my Indonesia example. If you have, if there's people among you, like maybe this is, maybe this is here in the church. Maybe this is elders. Maybe this is people in the church. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a fellow believer who exhibits knowing Christ deeply. Move toward them. Get to know them more. Like glean from them. Offer, offer to them. Move, move toward them. And I should say this, don't mistake passion and persuasion as close, closeness to Jesus. That's my little, little warning. Know the difference between closeness to Jesus and an ability to persuade. Because John was described, remember I said he was, he was like a very quiet disciple, it looks like. It looks like he listens more than he speaks. And his writings lead us into deep waters. So consider reading more of the writings of John. Consider listening and following people like John. And as we prepare to approach Christ's table this evening, I actually want to just lead into this by just reading to you what John said at the beginning of his gospel about Jesus. Let that frame the table and help you discern if today is a day that you take of the Lord's Supper. Ask the question, will I partake of this word that he speaks of, this light that he speaks of, this bread of life in whom we find grace and truth? So, John 1. In the beginning was the word, that logos, logic, mind, and heart of God. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. We as disciples are very different, but we come to one word, one light, one God who came in the flesh, and in him we all receive the same grace upon grace.